Welcome to the Inquisitive Minds Podcast. This podcast is all about searching for answers to questions oftentimes unexplained or unexplored. We want to engage with new and sometimes old theories, psychology, or philosophy from a research-based perspective. Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of the Inquisitive Minds Podcast. I'm glad you're all listening in today. And today we're going to be talking about genetic medicine. So what does that mean? What does genetics mean? What does medicine mean? I'm sure you guys both know those two terms, but together, how does it work and how is it improving your life or how could it be improving your life? Those are the questions we're going to be asking and trying to answer for you today. So first off right away, I want to kind of break down what we're talking about. When we talk about genetics, we're talking about the study of the human genome and all the genes therein. And we're trying to uncover the mystery of the human body and how we're built, how we're made, how we inherit our traits, how we give our traits to our children. All that stuff is really interesting genetic research. Now, when we apply medicine to that, what are we doing? Well, for a, for a lot of it, it's sequencing somebody's individual genome and using that information to help treat them with certain medications. Or it can be looking at a gene that perhaps is not working properly in an individual and replacing that gene, stuff like this. Now, we're going to try to break down a few of these key concepts today. So with that in mind, I want to bring in our, my, my good friend and co-host. John, how are you doing today? And how do you, how do you feel about this topic? Uh, doing this same old, just pretty good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, this 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 topic is very can be can be very technical, and I try not to go too technical because I'm not a chemist or a biologist or whatever. But I enjoyed the researching a lot of this stuff because I knew very little of this. So I think it'll be fun discussion because you're probably a lot more technical in this, and I'm quite the noob but <laughs> i think it'll be a good discussion and like I, yeah. as a caveat we should be careful of what peter says here because he's is he's in bed with big pharma so <laughs> just take a grain of salt what he's saying okay to, to, to help people understand what john's trying to say here is that i work for a company that is a subsidiary of a larger pharmaceutical company i won't name any names but um this is not true i'm not in the pocket of big pharma i just have a working living job like the rest of us okay <laughs> so moving on like we always do we go to our history first john you're going to start us off what do you got for us today so the beginning from what i found was gregor mendel sort of like known as like the founder of modern day genetics oh, he yeah. kind of did these pea experiments back in 1856 to 63 around then. And essentially he kind of established a lot of the rules that we see today in hereditary science. So he was essentially like breeding peas together and he's noticed traits in these peas that were either like recessive or dominant. Um, I remember doing a lot of this stuff in, I think it was like grade 10 uh, bio Oh yeah, and it was with those squares. Yeah, grade ten bio, with the squares yeah, and like squares. Which, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so and then he also after that a few years later he wrote a paper on he, what he called invisible factors, but oh. essentially as years went on we we figured them out now as we call them as like genes because they were sort of determining traits of an organism. Gregor Mendel, well, he <laughs> created the whole field of uh, Mendelian genetics. And very interesting because something that we'll talk about later on, which is very interesting, is the difference between recessive and dominant genes. So he was able to determine that some of the genes, let's say in a pea, in a pea pod, the peas are round versus wrinkled. The wrinkled ones, this is just an example, I'm not sure if it's true, but the wrinkled <laughs> ones, let's say, were recessive and they would only show up a quarter of the time. Whereas the round ones, even when bred with the wrinkled ones, would show up more than, would show up three quarters of the time. So he was able to determine that 
the recessive genes are only shown in a very small population, whereas the dominant genes will overlap a recessive gene showing up showing that one and this is um this is what we call genotype versus phenotype so if you have uh, one gene that's dominant and one gene that's recessive that is your genotype but the phenotype shows the dominant gene so uh hopefully this will make sense do you have any questions does that make sense johnny no i no i i understand i just had no idea the difference until now Okay. <laughs> Hopefully that makes sense to you listeners. Um, if it doesn't, then feel free to email us where we have an email address, iqmindspodcast at gmail.com. I'll just throw that one out. Shameless but, plug. Shameless plug. We want to hear from you. But this, yes, Mendel was very, very important. He's the father of genetics uh, that we, as we know of today. And this, this uh, difference between dominant and recessive is going to come up in, later on in our discussion. So from there, we're going to skip over some of the more technical stuff about Watson and Crick uh, developing um, developing the design for the double-stranded helix of the DNA sequence, and we're going to go right to the Human Genome Project. Johnny, yes. start us off. So uh, like uh, 150 years later, <laughs> <laughs> around there, right? It was around. 19 what 90 the human genome project started essentially like a plan to be 13 year publicly funded uh project to sequence the entire human genome which is around what, three billion base pairs yeah um which is a huge undertaking with i guess the technology they had those mm -hmm. days during those days so i think they kind of roughly finished around 2000 and did a whole bunch of reports so it was finally completed in 2003 but it was around 92 percent of the entire genome mm -hmm. so you might think what was the point of this where we what would we get from this so it kind of helps us understand what would possibly go wrong with certain genes like where certain ones would turn off or turn on through like the genotyping, finding mu mutations linked to cancers, designs of medications, just name a few. Yeah, the Human Genome Project was a massive undertaking. And one of the biggest reasons that we have so much now new research, but there's something that's really interesting about the Human Genome Project was that there was actually, because what you were talking about was a publicly funded effort from uh, the United States government and, and other, other countries working towards this goal, there was actually a private company that started in 1998. So they had an eight-year uh, backlog of information that they could use from the publicly funded group because all the publicly funded information was freely available. But they decided that they wanted to sequence the human genome faster than the publicly funded group. And they were going to take they were going to they were only going to pay 300 million dollars to do the research whereas the public funded group spent 3 billion dollars so they were going to do it faster and they were going to do it way cheaper so this was really interesting because the company was not only doing this to make to to try to beat the publicly funded group they were trying to make a profit so how were they going to make a profit by sequencing the genome well they started releasing patents on specific genes of the human of the human race it's so this was really really interesting an idea that they were sequencing and patenting and maybe maybe the patents were even coming first and then they were going to fill those in and try to patent specific genes so that if anyone wanted to do research on those genes or if anyone wanted to use those genes in medicine later on they'd have to first go to this company and pay a fee which would have been crazy right so it was all in the works until in 2000, Bill Clinton sat down with the groups and he decided that he wanted the publicly funded group, who was actually not going to finish as fast as the private group, to announce that they had both done it together at the same time and they released their data at the same time. So the public was unaware that a private company had beat the publicly funded um, company. But something that probably was not talked about with the private company was Bill Clinton then came out with a law 
that the human genome could not be patented. And that company's stock plummeted. (laughs) Oh my goodness. They were, they, they were ruined. They were ruined. They, all those patents, all that work they had done, that 3 million, 300 million, sorry, dollars of, of data of money that they spent to do this project was now pretty much wasted. Um, so <laughs> that's just an interesting side note to that whole story. Scary uh, thought, though, if they could actually get away with patent, patenting so much of the human genome, like they pretty much be like owning people's information, like genetic yeah. stuff, like. It would have um, really. I think it might have set back research quite a bit, but we'll we'll never know. And uh, and I guess there was there was a lot of social concerns and ethical concerns involved with this project. Um, a lot of people were worried that the increase of knowledge of the human genome could be used to discriminate against people. So, for example, like insurance companies, they could like look at see like specific genome of you and like refuse you based on like your health concerns based Mm -hmm. from those genes which we'll touch on more in later sections because it's you still brought it like it's still a concern today yeah for sure so i think our next thing uh i guess we're going back in time a little bit here but johnny you wanted to touch on eugenics yes a lot of and when i think of like the, a lot of bad situations that happened involving like genetics and, and this type of research and stuff. And I come, I, I come around and think of eugenics, especially like with the Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. But the thing was, is this happened, this has been happening for a while before Nazi Germany. It's just like, it's always associated with Nazi Germany because they did it on such a large scale. Um, Anyways, so like the point of eugenics, like the aim of eugenics is to improve the genetic quality of like the human population. So you can do it either positively or negatively based on if you want to prioritize the positive. So like the people that are fit to reproduce or negative, you target the people that are unfit. So a lot of nazi germany did a lot of negative eugenics so like they they targeting the jews excluding people in groups that are judged to be inferior and then like wiping them out mm-hmm. essentially which is horrendous mm-hmm. um but funny story when the nuremberg trials i probably butchered that um afterwards the trials no, that were so, like right? The trials that were like uh, to convict all the criminals or whatever were possible criminals of war crimes and such post World, World War II. II. Mm-hmm. One of the court cases was on uh, medicine, and specifically one of them was on eugenics. And the defense from whatever the German Nazi guy was, their their defense was that the eugenics that they were practicing was too similar to the Americans. <laughs> yeah. Which is so the history crazy of the history of the United because States is, there's, yeah, you never yeah. think I mm-hmm. pretty sure what I read was they, uh, they didn't get prosecuted with that defense. Wow. They actually won their case on that defense. I could be wrong, but that's what it, I, yeah, that's what I, saw it is true that the united states was um, practicing some form of eugenics prior to world war ii and after uh, what was seen in world war ii they immediately stopped and i think everybody agrees it was a good decision and morally reprehensible and i think why we wanted to talk about eugenics after we talked about the human genome project is because people can now start if the human genome project, sorry, if the human genome is now available to people in the future, like uh, if everybody has their genome sequence, you can kind of filter out potential mates if you wanted by looking at their genome and saying, okay, well, you've got these genes I don't like, you know, or, you know, mm-hmm. we have a chance of having a baby who has this recessive trait and it's going to be extremely detrimental to their health, these kind of things. So mm-hmm. um, in a way, we could be moving towards a, and I think we are, 
and it's kind of sad, but I think we are moving towards positive eugenics. And positive doesn't mean good. It just means uh, people are looking for good traits, but as in mm -hmm. a society, it might not be the best for us. Yeah. And, and that sort of segues into a, a new form of eugenics that is I, I saw being talked about in today's era called like new eugenics or mm -hmm. also known as liberal eugenics. So like liberal as in the term of like liberty as in autonomy, like choice. So right. like giving the choice to informed parents. So like it's essentially enhancing characteristics and ca capacities through the use of either like a reproductive technology or like human genetic engineering, which is pretty similar. But to me, it's it feels very like speeding up evolution because like you're you're kind of like improving the genetic basis of future generations like super quickly, right. like you're reducing genetic diseases and undesirable traits way quicker than like when evolution sort of weeds that out naturally. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So like so, some practices to these would be pre-implant implantation diagnosis or uh, embryo selection, selective breeding, genetic mm -hmm. technology, such as embryo engineering of gene therapy. So the, but the distinction here between eugenics that you saw in like Nazi Germany and this is the sense that it's like non-coercive. So with Nazi Germany, it was very government coercing. You didn't have a choice. You're getting the boot if you weren't X, mm -hmm. Y, Z. Um, whereas on this one, the emphasis is on choice. So giving like informed parents the choice rather than the course of government control. That's why I sort of mm -hmm. highlighted liberal or autonomy. Mm -hmm. But again, I think that's yeah. A downside to this is it sort of has a divide and it could potentially have a divide in society between the genetically modified and the natural. Mm -hmm. So that's something we'll probably touch more on a little bit in the discussion of the ethics, but that's sort of a precursor. Yeah, for sure. I think the, it is a big question that we will, we'll talk about for sure a little bit later on, mm -hmm. but uh, right now I want to keep our, our discussion going forward. So the last thing I want to touch on um, in the history section is the polymerase chain reaction, which is a big, big discovery that was made in 1983 by a guy named Kerry Mullis. And essentially what the polymerase chain reaction does is it allows researchers and scientists to look at genetic code, specific genes that is, with a lot more accuracy because what it does is it amplifies the, the, gene, the genetic material to a large enough scale that we can see it. So how it works is there are little primers made and these primers are little sequences of the beginning of a gene. And let's say I take a swab of your of John's uh, mouth and I get a lot of genetic material and I put that swab and I want to do a PCR reaction with it. Well, I want to select a specific gene and I have the primer for that. So the primer goes in and it goes in with his genetic material and you do a bunch of stuff to get rid of all the excess. And then once it's in there, you can heat up the reaction. So what that does is that will take the double-stranded helix and separate it. Now, once it's heated, you reduce the temperature a little bit. Then the primer will attach on to one strand right where the gene is. And then a specific protein that you've added will go in and extend that, that gene and make it now back into a double-stranded helix. But of course, that's happening on the other one that you separated. So now you have double the amount. And then you cycle that over and over again, and it, it, it grows exponentially. So the purpose of this is, well, why can't I just look at the original set of DNA that we have there? Because it's too small. It's, it's like looking for a, a needle in a haystack. You need to amplify it 100 million times so that you can actually see it with our current technology. And this was a huge 
huge, huge boon for the research field because now they could take the genetic code, which is like 300, 3 billion base pairs long, and we could go straight to one gene and then amplify that one gene and take a good look at it. And now I can take my genetic material and Johnny's genetic material, look for one specific gene and compare the two super easily with this, which is like a, a really, really important uh, piece of research and uh, innovation. So it's an, it's important to know which one you're targeting. So like, say you're pre-exposed to like diabetes or something, then you know that's like, oh, gene this, and you're like, okay, I need to target this one in particularly, and they go, and then they have the protein to target that, and then they blow it up a billion yeah. times so they can see it. Is that correct? That's pretty much it. Yeah, that's okay. correct. Yeah, the 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 big part about the Human Genome Project that made it a lot easier for us to implement PCR is that once we're able to see all the genes, now we can create those primers and use those primers to select specific genes. And that's why I'm kind of talking about PCR after we talked about the Human Genome Project yet again. Um, but enough about history. Let's talk about what's happening now. And we'll go to you, Johnny. What is your first piece of genetic medicine? There, there was a lot, so many different methods, and and it's crazy. Like it, there, it's this is just an iceberg, uh, tip of the iceberg of what we're talking about of all the different possible choices out there. Like Definitely. we we did research on our own, and we came back to have a discussion before we recorded this. And we didn't even have anything remotely similar. We did, we touched on <laughs> different techniques, different methods, and it was crazy. I was like, "Oh, I thought I'm like this is what I think this is what genetic medicine is." I thought, "Well, I'm thinking yeah. like gene therapy and genetic vaccines and cell therapy." And I I come back, and then Peter's on. Oh yeah, I did loads on pharmacogenomics, and I'm like, "I I didn't even see that." Like. And anyways, <laughs> I digress, but so I, I did a lot of on gene therapy. I thought that was pretty fascinating. So with, with gene therapy, it's, it's sort of like introducing genetic material into your, into cells, like into yourself. So like they, um, like one example, they like draw blood or bone marrow, they'll go to the lab. And the scientist will do his thing, mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the non-technical <laughs> stuff. Um, and then they'll essentially like inject it back in. So it, essentially it's so they like so one method is like they use viruses and these viruses will target specific cells that need to be kind of replaced or turned back on or fixed. Turn Like essentially mm -hmm. fixing is turning on or off. Um so they'll, they'll attach like a virus as a carrier and it'll bring the new information to that gene, but the, the virus itself isn't going, is like, isn't going to affect, isn't going to cause a disease or anything. Well, I think that was super interesting. Right. Um, now it yeah. wasn't like a hundred percent success. Like it's still in clinical trials, but yeah, sorry. I was going to say to help with the, the technical stuff. You're, what's happening is a, a certain gene is not working or maybe it's it's working too well or maybe it's not working at all or something like that, right? Or it's you have a recessive trait, so it's kind of only working half as good as it should. So what they've thought to do is take a virus, like Johnny said, that doesn't affect, that they've kind of turned off. We've They've synthetically made a virus that they've, they've turned off its negative features and now it's only positive features. And then they put in the code that they want so that when the virus goes in, it implements the code into that cell's DNA, and now the gene works properly, which is like super cool. Um, and I think they have a couple that, yeah, this is like, this is brand new stuff and they don't have a lot of things um, really uh, readily available. Did you have any like good examples for the, for stuff that's in the market now? Um, I don't know if they have too much sort of in the market. A lot of what I saw was still in clinical trials. Okay. But so like some of the barriers would be like, is finding that reliable way to get the genetic material to the cells. Like the virus isn't the only way they've been 
like uh, playing with stem cells with liposomes, which is like these lipid nanoparticles. Oh, um, okay. It's they have some difficulty with targeting the right cells, um, mm-hmm. like reducing any potential side effects. Like, what if that virus actually causes something? Um, mm-hmm. It could just target the wrong one and like possibly cause like an illness or cancer or something. Like, it could turn off the wrong one. Um, it's just stuff like that that they they have to keep uh, researching and figuring out. Um, and a lot of a lot of this gene therapy can be work can be used for so many side effects. So like, di- it could be to help with diabetes and heart disease, AIDS, like birth defects, disabilities, autism, uh, Down syndrome, Turner syndrome. And that's just to name a few. Like I have a half a page here of all these possible different conditions that can be fixed with this. So it's it's a lot of potential if they can upscale it to like to manufacture it based tailored to people's specific genomes. Right. Well, there is one that I saw, and I think there was one or two actual therapies uh, that are now allowed to be that the FDA has approved there in, in circulation. And I, f- I saw one that was called uh, Lux, Luxatra, Lux, Luxturna, Luxturna, let's call it. And it was used for your eye. And it, it was with people who had partial blindness and they, was, they had trouble seeing uh, light around the outside of their eye. So they actually have a gene therapy for this where they inject the gene with the virus into your eyeball which is scary enough to think about. <laughs> but then when you're done the therapy, you look at the price and it's uh, $425,000 an eye. An eye. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. So um, if you really want to see, it might be worth it. If your insurance covers it, it's definitely worth it. <laughs> but uh, that is a, that is an example of the... So what's happening is the cells within the eye are not working properly. They're not making the protein that receives light properly so they found the gene that does that and they've injected it and now those cells start to work properly again which is crazy and awesome and super interesting just wait until they they can actually large-scale manufacture it so it's not like four hundred thousand dollars like that'd be awesome like rather than like getting laser eye like maybe the potential fix well, laser eye does something slightly different, but the potential fix might be like just injecting these these genes into your eye, rather. Yeah. So. Um. That's really and cool. that that's cool. Totally, and that sort of also with right right beside it is sort of like genetic vaccines that that I saw. So, like even with like the COVID vaccine that we're seeing a lot being approved now, is is like with the mRNA, like Moderna. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like introducing these genes to the body that that help like produce these key antigens to help fight the infections. So, yeah, the difference here between a genetic vaccine, which is now what's being used for, let's say, COVID, and the old traditional vaccines is an old traditional vaccine has um, COVID, let's say, in the vaccine serum, but it has been reduced so it doesn't affect you in a negative way. So they've somehow modified it so that it's not bad for you. And then when it's injected into your body, your body has an immune response, it kills it off, and then it stores that knowledge and that genetic material away so that if COVID ever comes back into your body, it can quickly respond and kill it before it affects you negatively. That's how traditional vaccines work. But what the genetic vaccines now do is they skip a step and they they just use the genetic material of the co- of the COVID um, uh, virus and they inject that into you and now your body can do the same thing it recognizes that this DNA is new and is a threat and then it characterizes antigens for it and is able to do the same thing except you're able to skip a step essentially as a researcher so this makes this a lot more cost effective is the main pro is we're getting we're not 
relying on a live virus or bacteria when we're making um, a new vaccine. So that's that's kind of neat. And that's been around for some time now, but it's really something that we want to talk about because it's 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 kind of topical with the COVID vaccine coming around. Yeah, super like large scale levels now because of the COVID. COVID. I don't think it was ever this big or this fast. Mm-hmm. And now it's like front runner right it's the big the big deal yeah for and sure that, that and that last point you you made with like not actually injecting yourself with like the like actual virus i think is a an important distinction that i don't think a lot of people would know yeah. going in and getting the new vaccines it might it might make you feel a bit better too <laughs> because you mm-hmm. know some people say oh i got that flu vaccine and then i got the flu well that's not really what happened like the flu <laughs> vaccine didn't give you the flu is what i'm trying to say but some people feel like it does and there's a mental aspect to it for sure so maybe mm-hmm. you'll feel a bit better knowing that now you're getting a even even safer version of the vaccine <laughs> exactly so and then yeah that pretty much covers sort of the gist of what i was Mm-hmm. What I was looking under, like specifically gene therapy and genetic vaccines, mm-hmm. and then you were looking into pharmacogenomics, correct? Yeah. So this is what I wanted to focus on because it's it's more of what's happening now, or is is closer to reality than I think gene therapy and even um, genetic babies is. You know what I mean? So this is happening now. In pharmacogenomics, is the study of how a doctor can look at what they're prescribing you, let's say a specific drug for heart disease, or maybe it's for cancer, or maybe it's just a pain med, and then they can compare it to your genome to see and make sure that you don't have a specific gene that will make this drug react like it shouldn't when it's in your body. So this is why you've kind of, I think the, the researchers are beginning to understand that this is why people have different side effects to diff- to the same drug, right? Mm-hmm. So here's one really good example. Codeine is a painkiller. And how, how codeine works is that when it comes into your body, a drug is made that metabolizes it. This, sorry, a protein is made that metabolizes the drug. And it metabolizes it into morphine. Now, I hope you know morphine is a very good painkiller, and codeine itself is not. The, the active ingredient is the morphine. So what happens is, in, about, in the average individual, 20% of the codeine is uh, metabolized into morphine, and your pain is reduced. But there is a specific altercation or uh, mutation in a gene that can cause an individual to double the amount of metabolism. So they go from 20% codeine to morphine rate to 40% codeine to morphine rate. And you can imagine the side effects, dizziness, um, you know, you're feeling great, you, you know, like <laughs> quality side you, effect, you're feeling it's, great. It's really, yeah, it's really working good, <laughs> but you don't want to prescribe this to, let's say, a, uh, a mother who's who's just had their baby and this is a this is a real case study where um, the woman has a cesarean infection she needs pet, pain medication she has a newborn baby and she's nursing she's taking her medication and her baby is getting um, uh, an injection of morphine essentially and the baby is becoming um, not active and scares the mother of course they have to go back to the hospital but this all could have been avoided with pharmacogenomics so before the doctor prescribes the medication he can take a sample and sequence her genome and instead of sequencing her whole genome like we said uh, we can she can he can do a pcr reaction within the hospital and these pcr reactions now have been the research and the um, the technology has advanced so that these happen really fast and he can do a test for that specific gene and say you have a mutation, I can't prescribe you this drug, I have to prescribe you a different drug. So that's what pharmacogenomic is, that's the top level of it. And um, I thought that was really cool because it's happening now, it's it's an emerging field, and we can do it. Um, 
it's being done. So yeah, what did you what did you so, think about that, Johnny? So a lot of of it now is is done with the PCR, and not I, yeah, and not necessarily sequencing the entire genome. Yeah. So yeah, with like. Would would you would you ever see it to the point where like during a physical, say you're getting a physical, like you're a new doc, you see a new doctor, and like oh, I would like a physical, and and I'd like to sequence your entire genome. Like, would you do you ever <laughs> see it to that point where they'll they'll have all the information on you from the physical, and then right. they'll have all the information of you inside you. So if you come to them and be like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling nauseous, I'm feeling this or that, you'd be like, oh he'll like look at the physical your your physical traits or attributes or whatever and be like oh potentially it's this and then he looks at the genetic information and be like oh you have a high risk of this disease or this illness it could potentially be this and then maybe he goes into deeper right. with the pharmacogenomics of of a particular uh cure or Drug drug yeah drug um i think that's an interesting point because pharmacogenomics is not what you described what you described i think is something that we're moving towards which is um kind of picking up like the how your genes are affecting your overall health without any sort of uh, pharmaceutical intervention but the the difference that that is an interesting situation and i think I think it's hard for research to eventually get there because it's easy to do pharmacogenomics because it's usually a one gene interacts with one drug and you have a one-to-one -one ratio where, or maybe it's two genes interacting with, but it's, it's very limited in scope of how many genes are working against the drug. But when it comes to overall health, it could be a multitude of genes working in ways that we don't know that could be affecting your health. So we could get to that situation where you you go in, you get a physical and they look at your whole genome and they say, "Wow, we need to you need to start eating less cheese and more bread, you know, or something like crazy like yeah. that." But I don't think we're there yet and I think we're a long ways away from that. So pharmacogenomics is a lot more specific. Yeah. And I and I, I yeah. broadened it way too much with that analogy. I think so. I, I think, yeah, I think you did, but it's important to know the distinction for sure. And I think you, what you have to understand about pharmacogenomics is that past studies have set up a nice table for, for doctors to look at. So when I go to prescribe this drug, okay, I know about these mutations and I know how they affect uh, the drug I'm prescribing. So when I do my PCR reaction and I get my results, it's a very simple, okay, they have this gene, they're good to go, I can prescribe them the drug, they have this gene, or they have this gene that's different, okay, I can't prescribe them the drug, I have to go to this drug, kind of thing, right? So yeah. it's all been researched, it's all been studied, and they've created simple tables for uh, doctors to use so that they can get the prescription right, essentially. So it's just, it's like increasing the accuracy of doctors. Yeah, I think I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, not that doctors are doing a bad job, no, by yeah, any means, no. but yeah, but this yeah, that's would like help, if you have yeah. like three different drugs that all do the same thing, but are slightly different because certain genes hit them differently. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that's what you have to understand about the drugs too: is that drugs are metabolized by different genes in your body or they have met different methods. Maybe some genes are, um, sorry, some drugs will turn, get metabolized and turn on like the codeine to morphine example I explained. And some drugs will get turned off. So they'll come in and they'll do their work and then the body will slowly metabolize and then turn them off. So these are all different ways, different pathways that the body will metabolize and um, use the drugs once they're in your system. So you have to understand that different genes are doing that work. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. I hope that's not too technical. So from here, I think that's that covers pretty much everything we wanted to talk about today. We're going to avoid the bigger conversation, oh, yeah, that's... which is uh, CRISPR-Cas9, right? Which is yeah. gene splicing and literally inserting genes into 
in in vitro uh, babies and creating like genetic babies. We're we're not touching on that. That's a huge conversation for probably a whole different podcast. But we're gonna go into um, our discussion about the the ethics, like we wanted to talk about before, and maybe the cost and and other things. So Johnny, let's start start us off. What do you got? Yeah, just sort of just regarding like CRISPR and and not talking about it. We were we just really wanted to focus on, and you made the dis, this distinction at the very beginning, but we wanted to focus on specifically sort of medical care and not just sort of human genetics too broadly. Mm-hmm. So like like for example, like changing someone's like eye color, like non non medical phenotypes like eye color would be a lot more considered like human genetics very broadly where we wanted to really apply it to medical genetics. So like drugs Mm -hmm. or helping with like diseases and, and such. So some ethical concerns. The first one that I saw was, was with 23 and me. So I, I, I've heard about it. I didn't really know how it works or what it really does. I just heard it talked about a lot. So I guess it, it's sort of like a you give them your spit and they sort of genotype your uh, some of your DNA, yeah. your sequence, and um, and then they tell you the information back, being like, "Oh, maybe you're prone to this or that," and some of your ancestry mm-hmm. and and then. And they're, oh, okay, then you paid them for that service, right? And then they turn around and sell your genetic information that they just got to pharmaceutical companies or biotechnology companies for a profit as well. Right. So to me... They're double dipping. Double dipping, yeah. So like not only, like, sure, they're paying for the service, they're, they're doing the 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 science and giving you back the information what you're paying for and then they turn around and make even more money and you don't in you as a consumer Mm -hmm. of this product you don't know what they're exactly selling them right they're not selling like you don't Mm -hmm. know if they're selling just the information by itself or are they attaching your name and address to it because i assume when you make an account and you buy like Maybe they're attaching your credit card information to your genetic data. Now that seems absurd, but it, and that segues <laughs> into into the bigger concern is is when you get your DNA sequenced and stuff, they want to have like a, a big giant public database with all mm-hmm. sorts of 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 all the sequences. So research and and pharmaceutical companies and healthcare and stuff can reference these when they're doing like research or making this certain drugs or certain case studies and such so but a lot of that stuff when they're putting this big database together um it's pretty much just the genetic information. There's no names attached to it. There's no way of identifying the person with just that genetic information. You can't be like looking, you're looking at it in the da- right. database and you're like, Oh, look, that's Jim from down the road. Like that. No, like you don't know who that is. Right. Where, right. so with 23 right. and me, you don't know what they're selling them to the companies, right? If they're just setting, selling the genetic mm-hmm. information by itself, then it's not as as bad, but if they're also attaching some secondary identification, they'll know exactly who that is. And then what if the research, what if those companies are like, oh, we've done research off these and they want to sell it to like an insurance company, insurance company in your area. They're like, oh, we have your name, we have your genetic data, and we see that you're prone to right. like hunting the, hunting and disease or however you pronounce Huntington's. it yeah yeah which right Huntington's. a lot Huntington's, of yeah. a lot of insurance companies void you with that disease um yeah yeah that's and, just well to, to start to, yeah to, uh, yeah to unscare you from everything that johnny just scared you about um mm-hmm. i will let you know that there are there are 
laws in place in the government. In 2008, the United States government put into place a law that said that uh, insurance agencies and other other agencies cannot use your genetic material against you. There are similar laws in the EU and Canada that pretty much state that if at any point in time you go to 23andMe and you get your genetic data back and you go, oh crap, I have a terrible history of heart disease, and then you post that on Facebook because you want to tell all your friends, um, insurance companies cannot look at your social media and say, hey, you're lying to us about your health condition. You have to pay more in premiums. Like they can't do that. It's not illegal. It's not allowed. It's completely illegal. Uh, but you do bring up a very interesting concern on the ethics issue: is why am I a consumer of your product, allowing you to continue to profit off of my genetic information? And how do I know what you're doing with it? All very good questions. And I, I don't know what to say. Like it's it is scary, but. Like what can what can we do? Like we can't really yeah. do much. And maybe maybe um, the government will see that that's malpractice or something. And but it doesn't look they would never win that case. I don't think. Yeah, I think it's that... it's it's a, a gray line for sure. So like mm -hmm. to me, I'm like totally game with sharing. Like if I got my genome sequence, I'm totally game with sharing it to like the public database. That's yeah. Anonymously, not attached yeah. anonymously yeah so like it can further research or public health care like but mm. for me these private companies are are to me i have less trust in them they, they seem more shady to me now <laughs> i don't know if that's just a product of my environment or whatever but right. that, that's just where i stand mm -hmm. and and speaking of this big database um they they predict about sixty million genome sequence by twenty twenty five. So that's a pretty big database, and we're only off wow. by four years. That's a lot of data. Um, yeah. Where are they going to store all that data? But I mean, <laughs> I guess we have storage for the internet. But but that's a lot of data. So you have to think about um, how we're analyzing it with uh, computational power and stuff like that. But Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's 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 interesting. That's a lot. I saw I saw one case in favor of of the the putting your data out there essentially okay. is 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 sort of the the fairness. So if you're in a position that you can benefit from having your genome sequenced, it's only fair if you should if you should share it to everybody. So like getting your entire human genome sequenced has a cost. So if you're in a position okay. that you can pay this cost to have it sequenced for your use, for your doctor's use on you, et cetera, that it's only fair right. for the society to reap its benefits as well for you to add it to the database. So essentially okay. like I, it should I not have, so, yeah. it should be like, it should, you should not have consent that it should just be automatically put there, whether you have a choice or not hmm. because of the fairness for the whole society yeah. to benefit. Yeah, I'm trying to think of comparisons because that doesn't seem like something that holds up from the rest of the world where, you know, if you have the money to pay for food, well, why don't you just buy food for everyone? But it's different because it's <laughs> yeah, a one-time exactly. thing, right? It's a one-time yeah. thing. So like, okay, I you sequence your genome once, you don't have to buy food ever again. It's different. So yeah, uh, that's interesting. And mm -hmm. ethically, it makes sense right um you want to continue to add to the pool of information for researchers and we're all assuming that researchers are doing the good work of helping progress us as a um, society so sure i think that that's a valid argument i mean it, it just yeah for sh for sure it's it's good but what you said earlier about insurance companies or sorry um 23andme selling your data not so good and um, and I and we yeah. mentioned costs here and there, and I think that's an important one to mention here yeah. in the ethical concerns, because it's like the rich get richer if these medicines, if these these better solutions are are cost cost more, right? And they're not Definitely. just available to the public. Yeah. So like, it, it widens that socioeconomic gap. And, and I saw studies where, like one study showed African-American woman 
have been shown to have poor access to the BRCA1 gene, which is for breast cancer, to help help with that breast cancer gene, Mm -hmm. compared to white women. And another study, African and Asian ancestry are more likely to receive ambiguous genetic test results than than white ancestry. So they've just studied, yeah. That's that's just a product of um, of human beings studying more genes related to white, rich, probably you know individuals, and that's like yeah. a, a point of privilege in the, in the research. So when you when you are somebody who doesn't fit into that category, you're kind of left out, and your genes are probably less analyzed, which is a, a shame, but the reality of the situation. Um, which could also yeah. hurt the research going forward too, if they're only getting from a specific demographic like if you're only getting white Mm -hmm. rich people like the variety doesn't doesn't seem to be there Mm -hmm. and and like a lot of these clinics and and places are are specifically located in the more rich white areas like speaking in in north america at least yeah um so like just the the location alone is also separating not even just the costs because they're specifically located in the more rich areas yeah i think it's a snowball effect when it comes to this kind of thing it's like well i can afford to get my genome sequence so all these people who can afford to do so will give in their sequence and then all that data will be used for research and then all that research will come to fruition and show all this information but all the subgroups who couldn't afford are left out so you're missing like a large pool of uh, genetic information essentially so all the medicine so for example to relate this back to pharmacogenomics let's say somebody uh like the white population all their genes have been studied well now we know all the different drug pairings with those dream with those genes but when it when you go to somebody who's in who's less studied let's say like you said african-american women well maybe there's gene pairings we don't know about with them and they're experiencing side effects we can't we can't figure out because the the data just hasn't been run, you know? So that's an interesting point for sure. And also I read that there was, um, there was one case that was highly debated about specific medicine being prescribed only to those who are African-American. So if, if, because of the genetic information and this was, this was all studied and it wasn't prejudiced, it was specifically saying this drug will work better for you because of your, genetic inf- information and that goes for everyone within the african-american group so that was a interesting discussion should drugs be prescribed based on race essentially at that point mm-hmm. yeah so <laughs> and then it's just like a it's, it's a tricky subject because on like the surface that sounds like ooh, that doesn't sound so hot yet like yeah. in the science is like this should benefit you better like this but like on the surface like it sounds like a super rough line to cross yeah it sounds like you're giving me the bad drug because i'm this yeah it sounds like yeah like a segregation Mm -hmm. like there's a discrimination between the two like oh we should be very similar why is there why are these people getting these drugs and why are we getting these like on other drugs and just like that divide and that sort of with like i touched on with eugenics and and in CRISPR even going forward having like these genetically like like if we go past the medicine of just healing Mm -hmm. we can have these like genetically modified humans that are just faster better stronger smarter and that there has so many ethical and moral concerns because there'll be a huge divide where with between the two like there'll be like schools where you can only go to if you're genetically modified and leaving like all the naturals behind or like uh, on like someone's applying for a job and they somehow know like oh you're not genetically modified or you're weaker than the the new age the other candidate yeah 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 just it's scary again winding and I, I think there's even there's, there's some movies and stuff in pop culture, I think, kind of beginning to address these, yeah. which is super fascinating. Um, 
Well, fascinating in a yeah, movie I sense, see. but not like, oh, it's something I look forward to. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. I just wanted to clarify when we're talking about CRISPR. CRISPR is the technique they use to literally change your genome, and that's um, they can literally go in and take whatever code they want and slot it in. Um, so that 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 was like crazy revolutionary technology. Uh, we didn't touch on it because we didn't want to go too deep into that rabbit hole, but mm -hmm. uh, definitely, definitely um, crazy, crazy stuff coming up for the future. And um, I think that's that's all I really had to add to the discussion. Did you have any further points, Johnny? Um, nothing like constructive. I was gonna have like a, a nuclear hot take here. Okay, hit me. Just... What do you got? <laughs> so, have you ever heard of transhumanism? Uh, no. So what it's kind of like this philosophy movement of kind of like improving and enhancing humans, like any with technology in like any shape or form. So a lot of it's okay. using like with nanotechnology or with AI and stuff to improve the humans to the max they can be. Sure. Like, yeah. Well, like, well, like CRISPR would be yeah. a good example of the technology that could be. So like, right. We have these like superhumans essentially, but maybe that's that's the answer to surviving. Like that's the answer to our human race. Because like right surviving. now, yeah. Right now, like we're not that intelligent. We can be even more intelligent. So like right now we're we could be potentially killing ourselves with the climate catastrophe that we're coming up mm -hmm. with. Where the new humans these uh superhumans are smart enough and realizing that oh my god we're blowing ourselves up this is we're causing the next mass extinction and make change so the way to save the human race is actually to create these superhumans oh god what have you just asked me um <laughs> so well <laughs> What is the question? The question is, is this the correct approach to our future? Is that what you're asking me? Yeah. Like, is this, is this our way out? Is we ought to make these superhumans that will make better decisions for the human species going forward. Right. If not, well, then we'll, we're just killing ourselves as is where we need these smarter humans. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you have to look at, this is a question about your philosophy in general, right? Like, uh, how do you feel about the human species should we kind of live have our lifespan die off and let nature take take over or should we conquer the universe and never give in never give up like be like this depends on that so let's go with the second <laughs> one let's say we're we want to stay alive forever for sure let's do that yeah. so you're suggesting that we're never naturally going to get to where we want to be when it comes to intellect and yeah. for for some people that's like firstly that's for some people that's uh that's bad. That's um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, mean, uh, <laughs> mean, mean. Like it's not nice. It's not nice because some people, some people like prefer to be physical and prefer to be. And maybe you're saying, oh well, we can improve your, we can give you prosthetics that make you much more bigger, stronger, faster, or we can change your gene to be bigger, stronger, faster. Sure, th these things are possible, but specifically enhancing the human race just to have progress will probably come with uh, millions of ethical concerns. The main, the main one is um, you're, you're removing, you're removing people's kind of uh, singularity, I think at some point. So you're going to eventually have so many people being so good at everything that everyone's going to be the same um maybe that's not that's true maybe that's not true but maybe that 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 seems like a natural endpoint that so many people become everyone becomes everyone, so perfect that everyone's everyone becomes the same. so perfect that they're all the same the other thing is like in brave new world they're literally manufacturing individuals to be to do a certain job or to be at a certain intellectual level and if you haven't read that book, it's it's scary. But what happens is they're manufacturing individuals. Some are really, really dumb, and they do all the hard manual labor. But they like it that way. That's how they're programmed. Whereas there's people who are really, really intelligent, 
and they do all the tough analytical work. But they like it that way because they they definitely don't want to do all that manual labor. So like this kind of ethical concern begins to appear. Um, will will the choice be up to the parents always? That's the question, right? Because if we look at certain governments in in this world, like China, who's to say that they couldn't intervene and begin to tell you what kind of child you have to have? You know, if you're a poor family, you have to have a manual working child right stuff like this so mm -hmm. scary 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 stuff and i don't think that it would be proper because if you look at yeah. how humans have evolved without this um we've come up with brilliant technology that's continuing to rapidly evolve we're, we're we've gone to the moon we're going to mars like all this stuff um i think we're doing okay that we don't need to start changing our code as a form of progress. There's my answer. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. It's just a very loaded question, but I'm glad you brought up Brave New World. That was a good point. I like that. Yeah, no problem. Um, I think that's all we have for today. Johnny, any final words? No, I, that's everything. Cool. Okay. I thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please reach out to us if you have any questions. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. If you have any suggestions for further episodes, please let us know. All at IQMindsPodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> thank you so much for listening. Until next time when we give you something new to think about. <laughs>